So, I've talked about how this show is really your show, and this can't be your show unless I make sure I listen to the feedback I get from listeners and requests. So today, we are going to have a special guest in response to some requests for show episodes. And I think it's going to be a great show, and I think it's going to be full of really practical advice for those of you who are on call. So without further ado, we will get started. I am James Dibbon, and this is the Hospice Nursing Podcast. Well, that's right. Hello, everybody. Hello, nurses all across America. Uh, hospice nurses specifically, I guess I should detail that. Welcome to your show. That's right. This is the only show geared specifically towards hospice nurses to help you be more successful. And I guess our tagline, if I haven't mentioned it lately, is practical help for hospice nursing success. So thank you for joining me. I am your host, James Dibbon with ConfessionsOfAHospiceNurse.net. So I hope you will stop by the website and check out the blog episodes I've written and say hi and reach out to the show. So um, without a whole lot more further ado, I want to just jump right into our show today because we have a special guest who took some time out of her busy schedule to join us. We have Tanya joining us to talk about On Call. Tanya, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to share you with our listeners um, because I do have, I get a lot of listeners who reach out to me for the show. And I mean, I'm, I don't know if I should say a lot, a lot, but we definitely get a, have a lot of listeners. And every now and then I'll get an email or a feedback from somebody. And I've had more than one ask for us to talk about on call. And so through a mutual friend, uh, you have been recommended and we got a chance to visit earlier this week. So this wouldn't be our first time talking. And I just, I walked away from that conversation feeling just just this sense of more knowledge being poured on me and a deeper understanding of what it takes to be successful uh, in on-call. So thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on the show and, and share your knowledge with our listeners. Oh, you're welcome. So kind of what I like to do when I anytime I have a, have a guest on the show, I'd like to give them an opportunity to give tell us their hospice story what brought them to hospice as a nurse and what made them decide to make that part of uh just their profession and what kind of prompted them and how they got there so if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us well it kind of came in two parts it started with i spent most of my teenage years with my grandma and her brothers and sisters which they were quite older, and I watched them go through their journeys, several of them through end of life, um, and saw how they handled what end of life looked like. Um, learned a lot of grace from them, a lot of understanding about, 
you know, death is not the worst thing. Hmm. So fast forward a whole bunch of years and I had my second child and it was a little boy and he was born at two pounds, three ounces. And he spent six and a half months in the NICU. Um, came home, was on oxygen, feeding tube, apnea monitor, frequent suctioning, nebulizer treatments. Mm-hmm. And when we were discharged, we didn't know that we could have nursing support or, or nursing services. Um, and I still needed a, to work. There was no daycares that would take a child like this. And so I needed to come up with a way to be able to work, but take care of him. And it just so happened that a position for a weekend on-call position was posted um, for a local hospice, and I applied. And not quite 14 years later. Wow, here you are. Here I am. Here you are. So 14 years of on-call weekends for hospice. And holidays. And holidays. Wow. Well, on behalf of hospice nurses all over America who don't want to work weekends, thank you. Because <laughs> it, it, isn't, it isn't a role that's for everybody. It's for special um, hospice professionals. You know, it's for special nurses who just feel called to it. And your story is similar. I worked with another on-call weekend um, gal that I really enjoyed working with and her story is incredibly similar to yours. They they are foster adopt of special needs kids and her working the weekends and then they you know manage the children during the week together. So you're actually the second on-call nurse that I've worked with who this is just what they wanted to do. So it's it's a very interesting um, coincidence, I guess, but maybe your story is more common than I would realize. Possibly. Yeah. I think that sometimes you end up where you need to be without even realizing that's the path mm-hmm. you need to take. Oh, I like that. I'm going to make a note. <clears throat> sometimes you Sometimes you end up where you need to be. So it's like, it's, it's not, you didn't set out to do it, but it ended up being where you need to be. I like that. That it did. You could tell I take notes by hand. I don't type my notes. <laughs> I scribble quickly. Um, <clears throat> well, that, yeah, that you kind of covered two things for me because as you, you know, gave us your hospice story. It kind of explains why you chose the weekends. It worked for your family. And, and, um, so when we talked earlier this week, one thing I wanted to do was have some kind of a little bit of an outline. And as we discussed weekend on call or on call in general, I mean, this obviously applies to anybody who works overnights and holidays and, um, you know, but, as we spoke more, I could tell, and with 14 years of doing this, this is obvious, that you had orientated and trained plenty of weekend staff. And and this outline just created itself out of your just passion for the role, your passion for this work, and it's, obviously you, it's obvious you kind of have a teacher's heart as well. Um, and And so I know that there's some... There's some clinical team leaders, some clinical directors and stuff who are actually listening to this now that I think are going to really gain some knowledge and insight from you. So 
I want to work our way down the checklist and, and we're just going to take as much or as little time as we need to flesh some of this out. And I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this and I'm looking forward to hearing it again. And who knows what questions I'll, maybe I'll try to throw some new questions your way or new thoughts as we work our way through it. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. So, so let's talk about when you first walk in the door, one of your points on here was really fantastic. You said establish why you are there. So let's talk a little bit. You've gotten a call. You're going out to, to see, you know, this patient and tell me what you mean by that. When you walk through the door, having an understanding of the needs that you need to address um, helps kind of set the tone for the visit. So if you have caregiver exhaustion, your visit's going to look one way because you're going to provide more support to a caregiver that needs support. If you have a family that is at their wit's end and they have a list of five complaints about things that have not been addressed, then your visit needs to address those five things. So that when you leave the visit, you make sure that you have met their needs. And I mean this in a, a nice way. If they do not feel that their needs are met, they will call again and again and again. By meeting the need that they're having, getting them out of crisis, it, it really makes it easier on you because you have a family that is settled, is not going to call back. You know, have an understanding what's going on. The panic has gone away and they end up having a better hospice experience. One of the things I like to do, especially families that have a list of things like I need med refills and they haven't pooped in a week and I don't have supplies. And so what I would do is they went through them. I would reiterate it back to them and I would point at my finger so they could see like these are your top four issues. At the end of the visit, I again point at my fingers and go over each one individually and say, these were your concerns when I got here. Did we address these? And if those are addressed, do you have any other questions? And I found a lot of success doing that because it showed them that I was listening, that I remembered what they said, and that I had addressed their issues. I really like this on concept i just in my notes i wrote closing the visit i'm not sure i've i've not i don't know if i've ever done that i mean i i'm deaf i'm very i'm very conversational in my visits and and i mean i've done lots of on-call visits but the reason i wanted to have you on the show is that it, it's not been my vocation or by you know i've just had to do them as most hospice nurses have and i've covered and i've worked weekends but when I'm thinking this through, I know that I've like, okay, everybody, well, it's good to, glad I could be here to help and call us if you need anything and we'll see you later. But to stop and take a minute in front of the caregiver or whoever and review why you, this is why you called me. Here's the issues that we addressed. Have I missed anything? That's just such fantastic advice for all of us to take in because I, I think it's real easy to be so focused on the next visit that we're just kind of whisk our way out of the of the house and maybe not really have this um, intentional closure to the visit with the caregiver. So I like that. Well, 
one of my goals was always to give my family's peace of mind when I walked out of the door so that they weren't worried, they weren't concerned that they weren't doing the right things. Yeah. And I found that this really helped with giving them that peace of mind. I like it. I like it. I'll be sure to, in the show notes, put that. Don't forget to close the visit. <laughs> and <clears throat> uh, anyway, it's really good. Really good. Okay, so you, you've seen our, our outline. Tell me about in uh, point number two on here, because this is something I never really considered on here. But when we were visiting earlier this week, you said that um, it's important to identify the type of visit that you're doing before you even walk in the door. Kind of flesh that out for us. Talk about that. W what's that all about? When you're doing on-call, there really is about only about three different kinds of visits. You're going to make visits for death. You're going to make visits for symptom management. And then there's the procedural visits, like putting in a Foley, draining a Plurex, maybe doing a dressing change. Knowing the kind of visit that you're making tells you what tools to bring with you. So in a death visit, you're going to approach it a little bit differently. You know, offer your condolences know that these are the things that you're going to need to do. Contact the funeral home and kind of have an idea of what you're going to do before you go in. If you're going for symptom management, those are a little bit different um, in that you know you have issues that need to address. Maybe it's shortness of breath. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's family anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if you're making a symptom management visit, you know those visits are probably going to be a little bit on the longer side because you want to make sure that you've addressed those issues that they've called for and make sure that they know what to do next. So you've called me because your loved one is having uncontrolled pain. We've got the pain under control. This is what you're going to do next. If it comes back, this is what you're going to do. This is when you would call me next. These are the things that you can, ex you can expect. Mm. Now, procedure visits are usually kind of short. You're just going in. You're doing one thing. You're not case managing. You're not reinventing the wheel. You're going in to do that one thing. That can be so hard <clears throat> because as nurses, I think we're problem identifiers. How did you learn to push that down uh, and kind of manage that in your spirit or in your desire to see other problems and want to fix them? How did you fight that off? One of the things is kind of keeping in mind why you're there. That's why you're you're counting on your fingers the things that you're doing. You know, stating the purpose of your visit as you walk through the door. You called because you need your dressing changed. Okay, let's get your dressing changed. Is there anything else I can do for you? Right, right. What? Tell me about like falls. Would falls be kind of under the symptom management category of that? They are. It, usually falls are related to the disease process. So you're going to do education about disease process, mm -hmm. talk about this is what you can expect, and then how can we keep from having this happen? If it happens again, what are we going to do? Right, right. <clears throat> so I'm going to, this is definitely going to be a little bit of a curveball, but I'm real interested to get your thoughts on this. So 
when I've worked with my on-call staff and I'm talking about getting calls and so let's say you're training a new, a new, um, weekend lady or male, whatever, <laughs> it just comes out natural for me. Um, a new on-call nurse for the weekend and the, and you maybe you're going through a scenario and that nurse just says, well, and, and, and they're going to be talking to a family member. I'm hopefully I can spit this question out where it'll make sense. But the, I, I know you've probably heard this where they say, well, there's really nothing I can do. Like if I, sure I can drive over there, but I can't change the outcome or I, there's nothing I can necessarily do for them to fix their concern. What would you say to a new weekend on-call nurse or maybe one that's come to you that maybe has a little bit of experience and, and he or she is like, I don't know why I would go make that visit because there's nothing I can do even though they're asking me to go. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I have had some members at the hospice nursing community request some kind of a support group to help fight burnout. And so I have started two burnout support groups at the hospicenursingcommunity.com just to help everybody. And so these support groups meet twice a month on the second Thursday and the second Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be doing that. And I wanted to make sure you understood or knew that these will be faith-friendly support groups. And it doesn't mean they'll be preaching or anything strange like that, but I might use devotionals. I might pull something out of the Bible, maybe out of Psalms or something, but just there might be sections of the, uh, of the group that deal with matters of faith. And, and I hope that is of interest to you. Uh, it can be found in the community events, uh, section of the community. So if you would consider joining, I think it would help you. It's going to help me. I need it, I think, as much as anybody does. So join a burnout support group at thehospicenursingcommunity.com. I will say no visit is ever wasted. Mm-hmm. And I have found the longer I did this, the more proactive I was in making visits with that first call. It say it, a short visit at the at the first call saved me from much longer visits later in the weekend because let's say they call Saturday morning at eight o'clock. If they're calling back Sunday afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon, I can promise that that's going to be a two two and a half hour visit because now they're at the end of their rope. They have no more coping skills. They're stressed out. Their needs were not met. And then you go make that visit on Sunday and they're still unhappy. It's going to carry over until Monday. Mm, Yeah. By making a 20, 30 minute visit the first time they called, you could have solved most of the problem. You could have done education about disease process. You know what? These are the things that you're going to see. They may be scary, but this is normal. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, knowing what they're seeing is normal, it takes the scary away. Yeah, and 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 that's exactly what you're talking about there is scary and frightening and and what I tell my nurses is you might not be able to fix the problem but you can be there for that family because what I've found so I you know I've definitely had to jump in my car and drive all over this uh, you know halfway across the city because somebody said that they were j- 
it, they didn't really say it out loud, but they were just like scared or anxious and, or that they felt like dad was kind of close. And, you know, I would get there and walk in and I just spent a lot of time just listening and letting them vent and letting them express their feelings and their emotions. Because I think sometimes when nurses say that they forget that we're also there to care for the family, not just the patient. And sometimes it's just a cry for help, right? From, from a caregiver who's just scared. It is. And keep in mind that hospice, you know, dying at home is still fairly new. We went through, through a long period of time where people died in the hospital more than at home. And so we've lost that generational knowledge about what death looks like. We've lost that generational knowledge about how this is a normal and natural part of end of life. It's not optional. Death is not like they show it on TV, you know, where they zap you once and you're sitting up eating chicken at the end of the visit. <laughs> right. Right. Well, no, that's really good. And, and, I think if we recognize that sometimes families are calling us because they're scared and we just, you can't replace our presence with a voice over the phone. It just doesn't work. Maybe your phone, your voice, because your voice is so gentle and, and soft and kind, maybe it would work. But for somebody like me <laughs> and for most of us, just being able to walk in and make that eye contact and put their fears at ease, you know, and help them understand what they see in front of them i think is just you know really really good so um so we can move a little bit past that i i think that's really good i and i put here in quotes no visit is ever wasted and i really like that and i think even if we just show up to make sure that they feel heard and supported then you haven't wasted your visit so not at all i like that i like that a lot Tell me a little bit. One thing we hit on was your philosophy when it comes to on-call nursing uh, stock, car stock. Tell me kind of how you would train a new nurse when it comes to that. Well, when it comes to car stock, if you're keeping in mind you're only doing three different kinds of visits. You're doing death, you're doing symptom management, and you're doing procedures. So most commonly, you're going to be placing Foley's. You're going to be doing some basic dressing changes. You really don't need like central line dressing change kit if you're doing on call. You really don't need, you know, the 50 different size dressings, 20 different size bandages. You need just basic car stock because what happens is that when you have too much of a variety, you lose the things that you really need and you'll use up the things that you really need and not have what you need. Gotcha. By keeping it very simple and and kind of minimal, you know, mm -hmm. enough to that you could get through a weekend, but not much more than that. Makes it easier to find supplies. Things don't get lost, get out of date. And you know that these are the things I have that I can work with. Versus I have all these packages and I have to dig through them for an hour. <laughs> You've been looking in my trunk because <laughs> mine is so bad because I try to have three of everything in my trunk and it's really bad. You would, you'd have a full-time job getting me straightened out on the whole trunk supply thing. 
<laughs> well, when I first started, I was like that. I had supplies till supplies would not end. But then I found that I didn't use them. I was wasting space in my car. I really needed 10 Foley kits. I did not need five central line dressing change kits. Right, right. Okay, so how about, so let's talk about this. Many of my listeners may be really glad I waited this long in uh, the interview because one of my big themes on this show, and I probably get into it at least every other episode, is charting and the importance of charting and how to manage that in your visit and manage that throughout your day. So help our listeners, especially the on-call nurses out there, to understand what are some good strategies to, um, you know, for your documentation throughout your on-call weekend? Well, if possible, I like to document in the home. So if I have a caregiver that, that has all of these concerns, I, I would get out my computer and I'd say, you know what, I want to make sure that I'm putting down what you're saying is a concern so that the team can see that, that this is what this is what you're worried about. And this is how we addressed it. So we're all on the same page. I found that even my most anti-computer families really warmed to that idea. They liked the idea that they were being heard. The information was being shared. So that worked really well for me. The other thing I found was that if I had a very complex visit where maybe it wasn't appropriate to document during the visit um, or a symptom management visit, what I would do is... I would do my visit, the stuff I needed to, but then about getting close to the end of the visit, I would excuse myself to go to my little mobile office to put some notes in, and I told the family, I have given you copious amounts of information. I'm going to give you some time to think about what I've said and, and to process it a little bit. I'm going to go put some notes in the computer, and then when I come back, you can tell me if you have any questions. Because I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor's office and they say, do you have any questions? Like every thought I ever had in my head, you know, gone slides out my ears. <laughs> you know, I get back in my car and I'm like, oh, I have this list of 50 things I meant to ask about. And I found it was a really good way to connect with the families, give them time to think about what I said. And a lot of times they would have very good questions that they did need an answer to about what was going to happen next. Did they understand the instruction that I left them? Very good. So it, keeping that in mind, I know that let's, it, you're going to get calls or at least notifications while you're in a visit that you've got another family who is going to need you um, you know, to be headed that way shortly. How do you manage your charting to keep it from piling up on you as the day goes along? Um, if that makes any sense, if, if that question makes very much sense. It does. Um, so when I would get done with my visit, if I didn't get a chance to complete my documentation in the visit or if I didn't sit in the driveway for a couple minutes after my visit, I would just pull down the road, taking five minutes, just a couple houses down, to finish my visit notes before I went on, made all the difference in the world. It, that five minutes didn't make that big of a difference to the next family, but it did make a difference to me at the end of my shift. Right, right. 
there's such this because I I can feel it in my spirit too, especially if I'm <clears throat> working a weekend and I know that my partner. Let's say there's two of us. I've I've been I've worked for small hospices and large hospices. I've worked for hospices where I was it for on call, and I knew there was another visit coming. Or maybe a call came in, there was a fall, or maybe there was a death. That's the one that I think can really pull and tug at us. If there's somebody on the floor and lift assist is on their way, you know, and and I know that if I chart, it's going to, instead of getting there in 25 minutes, I'm not going to get there for 35 minutes. How have you learned, you know, what's your, how have you learned over these years to not let that push you into bad documentation habits, if that makes sense. Well, the longer you do it, your documentation gets a little bit easier and a little bit quicker. So uh, practice makes it quicker and easier. The second thing is, with all due respect, they're not going to get any less dead in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. They're not. If lift assist is on the way because they're on the fall on the floor, Lift assist is perfectly capable of getting them up, making sure they're settled. And then when I come in, it's not mass confusion. Mm. I have found sometimes that it actually goes a little bit better if lift assist is out before I come in. All right, I'm going to throw another one at you. This is totally unplanned, which makes it even better. What if the phone call is, we're, we're, we're going to call 911, they're on their way and you're feeling the need to get there to maybe talk them out of it or something. And so now you really feel like you need to get going because now EMS is headed to the house as well because the family's in a panic. Well, I, I don't know in your area, but here, if the family does call EMS, EMS calls hospice. If they know, if it, if they know it's a hospice patient, um, then EMS will call hospice and talk to us directly. Like before they get there even? Once they get, Once there, they get there, EMS will call hospice. Um, the hospice that I worked for did a lot of training with the EMS in the area to teach them about the importance of calling hospice. Wow. Did they always do it? No. Um, but I would just tell the family that if EMS arrives before I get there, let them know that this is a hospice patient and the hospice nurse is on the way. So even if it was maybe different EMS or a different county, a lot of times they'll wait for the hospice nurse to get there um, because they're not always a hundred EMS isn't always a hundred percent on board with transporting actively dying patients. Mm, right. Right. Okay. I like it. You're doing good. <laughs> I'm not very shocked <laughs> after this many years. I'm trying hard to, to stump you and I'm not getting anywhere, but I love it. Uh, these ideas just popping up and just scenarios I've run into and just getting some of your feedback and your thought process. This is I'm learning. Hopefully everybody else is too. I'll get good feedback on this because this is good stuff. Um, let's let's talk about what a thing that I know I would struggle with, and that is trying to separate your home life from your on call on the weekends because for example let's say maybe it's a little bit slower of a weekend and stuff is going on with your family or whatever how do you manage that i mean because it's one thing for us to tell our family okay listen i'm i'm on call today i've got a lot to do 
but there's still activities and that yearning that we have to try to pop into those if we can. And there might be a slow weekend where we can or where we can't. But what are some strategies that you use to help compartmentalize that a little bit on the weekends or on call after hours? I was always very clear about these are my work hours. Like, so if it was not my immediate family, you know, I'd explain it that, you know, not showing up to your office at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, wanting you to, you know, go on a picnic with me. The weekends are the same way for me. Um, it can be challenging. Everybody likes to plan stuff on the weekend, but I always had the expectation that I would not be able to participate in things on the weekend. So if it did happen, it's an added bonus. But for the most part, just recognize that these are my hours. This is what I need to do. And if there's some kind of a family emergency, your options are to either reach out to a supervisor, right? And say, hey, you know, something's happened. I can't finish the weekend or I guess using your resources is important. I will tell you, even when my son was the sickest, I never missed a day because of that. Uh, my husband was primary parent on the weekend. Mm. You know, we we went into me working the weekends with that agreement. He was primary parent, and he needed to do all the things the primary parent would do. So if my son was in the hospital, he was primary parent. We had grandparent support to help with um, my daughter, but... right. Yeah, just just teaming up and getting it done and recognizing you signed up for this, right? You signed up for this. This was the agreement between you and the organization. And yeah, and and that can be challenging when it's pulling on your heartstrings or families really, you know, um, wanting you to be somewhere. But I'm sure you got them all trained over time and probably had a lot of birthday parties during the week and not as much on the weekends. We did. We just got really creative with how we handled holidays and how we handled birthdays and, you know, how we handle family gatherings. Yeah. So here's here's an, here's another one we talked about a little bit, and we, we discussed this in our interviews quite a bit, but I would love to hear your feedback. So if we're interviewing somebody who's maybe never been a field nurse, we talk about challenging environments and homes that we have to go into where you're like, uh, I can't believe people live this way. Talk about some of your strategies or maybe even just your thought processes when it comes to, to homes like this and, and that are kind of like, okay, this might be a drug house. <laughs> you know, how do you handle that? Well, when it comes to like challenging environments, I like to think of it this way. Their environment hasn't killed them yet. <laughs> you know, they're, we don't have anyone on hospice services because the house is dirty or has bed bugs or any other creatures. You know, it's not why they come on hospice services. It's just a, not even a side effect. It's just part of their life. The other thing I like to keep in mind is that a lot of times, our hospice patients have come to us after a journey. Like, they didn't get sick just one day. And so I think a lot of times their environment reflects their journey to get to us. They probably had lots of energy. 
it probably didn't always look like this. Mm. But when you have limited energy or limited resource, something has to give. And the house would be an easy one. Mm. I think that's really good. I think sometimes because we're just in and out of all these different homes and I think sometimes we can just forget how overwhelming illness can be on patients and their family members and their caregivers and where they just feel so defeated all the time. Well, and and it's not our job to go in and make them feel bad about their environment. You know, and, and I always like to, when I made a visit, I always like to give a compliment to the caregiver because we at no point had any caregiver that got up in the morning is like, I'm going to do the crappiest job I could. These were all people that were trying really hard to the best of their ability, you know, and sometimes they just had incredible challenges. You know, maybe we have a caregiver that's illiterate. We need to think about how we can write a medication schedule that they can understand. Mm. Um, We have caregivers that had physical disabilities themselves trying to provide care, you know, elderly caregivers trying to provide care. And I think sometimes complimenting them on their care, if you can find something nice to say, um, you know, sometimes it's complimenting them on the beautiful sheets they have or how pretty they've made the room or focus on something good for them. I, I talk sometimes I've, in, a, in previous episodes that our caregivers can be very volatile. It doesn't take much for them to really feel like they're failing their loved one. And I talk about focusing on intentions, not necessarily the results, because it because, you know, it's the intentions we want to be able to gauge of our caregivers, because, you know, as long as we can tell they're trying to give the best care they can maybe they made a poor decision along the way and you know didn't make a bed the way we would have made it or didn't quite you know they were scared of the pain medicines and they didn't give enough and we get there and the patient's in pain or uncomfortable you know we still need to look at that caregiver and try to assess what whether it's just whether it's their intentions you know, as long as their intentions are good, we can't overjudge the results. I have always felt in my heart of hearts that every nurse and every physician should have to be a caregiver to someone that needs total care for 72 hours. Mm. Because I think if you've ever been around-the-clock caregiver for someone that needs total care, you come out the other side with a much better understanding. Hmm. You don't write the dumb Q one-hour orders. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, that is my biggest pet peeve. You are setting people up for fail Hmm. when you order something Q one-hour, Q two-hour. There is no way that one caregiver can do that day after day after day mm-hmm. because they don't care give in a vacuum there's laundry there's dishes there's cooking the bills have to get paid 
grocery shopping has to get done. It's easy as nurses to kind of breeze in and out and not be able to look at that whole big caregiver picture. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you are new to hospice or considering hospice, then in September of 2022, I created the website for you. I created thehospicenursingcommunity.com. What started out as a simple community has become a large library of video trainings. Thehospicenursingcommunity.com now has over 45 video coaching sessions covering subjects such as bedside charting, the hospice comfort kit, the four levels of care, how to interview for a hospice job, and so much more. I just completed a seven-part series for case managers, and I'm getting ready to start a series on the PPS scale. The hospicenursingcommunity.com is available for just $4.99 per month for full access. Head over to thehospicenursingcommunity.com for hope, help, and encouragement. And remember, hospice nursing doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. So let's get better at it together. That's so good. I'm so glad you said that because I have in my hospice travels had to work with more than one nurse who by no fault of their own, this is how they were trained, are used to running around giving Q1 every single hour instructions to their caregivers and then just leaving and driving down the road. And then they're surprised the next day when the patient's pain is out of control or the caregiver is fried, just done, you know, and, and I was always taught that our goal is to get to every four hour dosages so that for caregiver fatigue and, um, just more effective pain control. I can pretty much guarantee if an order is written for a patient to have Q one hour medicine on Friday, that sometime either Saturday or Sunday, that caregiver is going to call me in tears asking me to find a nursing home bed. Mm. Emergency respite. <laughs> get this over with. If you can get a bed. Yeah, which on the weekends, especially now, there was a time when we could, but it's with COVID and the pandemic and everything. Weekend emergency respite places are rare if i mean we haven't done one in a long time either as well so yeah my rule of thumb is to not ask the caregivers to do anything that you yourself would not be willing to do mm -hmm. if you're willing to set your your alarm every hour and get up and do something then oh by all means write that order <laughs> but if you are not willing to do it yourself don't ask a caregiver to do it i love it i love it Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm really sad. We're at the end of our checklist. <laughs> it's not long ago. It's not long enough. You're way too, um, knowledgeable and concise and well thought out, but this is so far, this has just been fantastic and I would love to get off script more, but I can't think of anything. So one thing I put, so I asked you the other day what your favorite resource was that we could maybe share with our listeners. And I left the stupid thing upstairs, but you talked about the, the blue book. So let's go over that again. I don't have it in front of me and I'm mad at myself. I can't read it off, but you, you mentioned most, of our listeners are going to know exactly what the blue book is, but talk about it and I'll jump in a little. 
It's Barbara Kern's Gone from My Sight book. Right. It is a little booklet that has maybe 15, 20 pages in it. It's very simple, easy to read, pretty big print. Um, there's the way it's printed, there's room to make notes on each page, kind of in the margins. But my favorite part is at the back of the book, not the last page, but like the next to the last, um, there's a summary of guidelines. And it talks about the things that you see months before death, weeks before death, and then hours to minutes. And it, it's just kind of like a list. So when I had caregivers that were completely in denial about what's going on, I like to get out that book. And I always carried a red pen just for this specific reason. And I would sit with the caregivers and I would say, have you seen this? Oh, yeah, they've been doing that for months. Oh, well, let's put a mark next to it. We would go through and make marks next to the things that they're seeing. And more than once I had caregivers say, I, I didn't realize they were dying. They've been doing all this stuff, and I didn't know what it meant. That's so good. So I, I had one of those books upstairs, and I grabbed it the other night when I was working on our notes and putting some things together. And as many times as I've kind of thumbed through that book, I went ahead and went to the back of it and found it. And it is. It's just two pages, and it's just bullet-lined out. And what a great idea to go through, like especially if you're a case manager and you're going in, this is your first time seeing this patient, to be able to go to the back of that book and review that with them uh, would do so much. So I had a patient who passed last year, and the, the, the daughter was really, she was in more denial than I recognized to my own fault. And so I went and saw her one day and I'd been case managing her for just a short period and she was in bed. She was bed bound. She was minimally responsible. They were using syringes, trying to hydrate her a little. And the daughter asked me with this panic looked on her face. She said, is she dying tonight? And I said, I, I don't think she's dying tonight, but I think she's probably going to die soon. I think the daughter heard me say, I think when she heard soon, she thought months. And I didn't learn that until after it was all over. She reached out to me and I felt about this big because she really didn't know her mom was dying. And because I really just didn't, I wasn't either blunt enough or whatever. Sometimes I think we can accidentally sugarcoat things ourselves because to look somebody in the eye and say, yeah, your mom's going to die tonight or in the next 24 hours. I can't always pull that off. I should be able to, but I can't always. And the idea, if I would have, if I would have known this, you know, so I needed you and you weren't there. No, <laughs> but if I would have known this, the power that I would have had to open up the back of that book and go through that with her would have been, it would have been life changing for her. The other thing I like to tell, especially families that have multiple caregivers, is to use that summary of guidelines and put dates next to when they're seeing stuff, especially when you have multiple caregivers. Mm. Um, this is a way for them to kind of keep track and keep everyone on the same page. The other thing that you can do is if you have, say, a family member in Washington and Arizona and Maine and, and you're over here in Virginia, 
I recommended that the caregiver put in marks and then periodically take a picture and send it to the other siblings so that we're all on the same page. This is what I'm seeing. It's not me telling you mom's dying. This is the literature that they've given us. These are the things that mom's doing. You decide when you want to come make a visit. That is fantastic. What That is such great, great, great advice. I can't think of a better way to begin to wrap up our show than that advice right there. You have been just absolutely fantastic. This has been so much information and so helpful. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. You got to go to work tomorrow morning and um, and been busy all week with the kids and got them to bed and hooked up with me to do this FaceTime. So thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your wisdom with the audience. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, this has just been just excellent uh, show, and I really didn't doubt it from the very beginning because the conversations that Tanya and I had earlier this week were so good, and I knew that um, that this was going to be really powerful, really good show, and so I just appreciate everybody who's taken the time to download the show and um, and and has just reached out to me and has thanked me for the show there's more people than i could even name off and so i'm glad this show is beneficial to everybody so everybody thanks for listening don't forget to stop by the website at confessions of a hospice net. you can send me an email at james at confessions of a hospice net. Or you can call our callback listener feedback line, which is 816-834-9191. So I want, once again want to thank our special guest, Tanya, and thank you for listening. This has been Episode 10 of the Hospice Nursing Podcast for April 17th, 2022.